Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We pray that as we look at this passage, which I think feels perhaps difficult in some ways, controversial in some ways, that you help us to think seriously about who Jesus is as our Lord, that you help us to make tough decisions to follow him. Please help us to understand this passage and its implications for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the day that I got married, my minister said this to us. I've checked it up on the video. This is an accurate quote. What you become five years from now will, to an ever-increasing degree, be the result of the influence of each upon the other. Carmelina, he said, it will be your doing the shape of this man. And what my minister said has proved true. In the 17 years that I've known Carmelina, she has had a vast impact on my life. I'm a completely different person now from what I was then, as a mere babe. And she has been by far the biggest influence in my life in this second half. And that includes my Christian life. Carmelina has helped me and encouraged me and that has been vital in my Christian development. Who you marry will have a, have a profound impact on your life, including your Christian life. It'll make a big difference. Now God, of course, knows this. And so in the law of Moses, God told Israel to be very careful about who they marry. God said that Jews must not marry non-Jews. Otherwise, he said, you will be led astray. On your outline, you can see from Deuteronomy chapter 7. I hope I put it there. Deuteronomy chapter 7. God said to Israel, do not intermarry with them. It's the peoples around. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. It makes sense. God wanted Israel to involve him in every aspect of their lives. He says, I want you to love me with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He says, I want you to love my law. I want you to talk about it day and night when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk in the way. He said, I want you to have it in front of your eyes. I want you to have it on the doorposts of your houses, on the gates of your towns. I want you to be my people in every aspect of your life. I want you to eat Jewishly. I want you to work Jewishly. I want you to holiday Jewishly. And how do you do that with a pagan husband or wife? How, how do you talk with them all the time about God's law? How do you work with them to teach your children God's law? How do you keep kosher when your wife won't cook kosher? How do you make your home a, a faithful Jewish home when your spouse is not a faithful Jew? Realistically, you cannot do it. It will not work. And so God's law for Israel was clear. No intermarriage. Well, that's what God's law said. And remember, as we saw last week in Ezra chapter 7 to 8, God's law is what Ezra was on about. Ezra came to bring God's law back to Israel. 
He came from Babylon to Israel. He brought God's law with him and his mission was to teach it and to apply it to the people of Israel. Now in chapter 9, we see there's a problem. About four months after Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, some of the leaders come to him and they tell him that in direct contradiction to God's law, the Jews have been intermarrying. Look with me at Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1. Ezra chapter 9 and verse 1. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness, in this treason against God. Ezra is stunned. He, he, he mourns and grieves for Israel, verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Ezra grieves, and it is grief he turns to God in prayer. He starts off his prayer by confessing the enormity of Israel's sin. Verse 5, Then at the evening sacrifice I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are, are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Israel's sin is enormous. And he says, he says, that's why we went into exile last time. Because we wouldn't obey your law. Verse 7. From the days of our forefathers until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. Last time Israel disobeyed God's law, they went into captivity. They were defeated. But now God has been gracious. He's been merciful. He's, he's rescued a remnant of them and he's brought them back to the land. Verse 8. But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. See how he's recounted the history? God has forgiven them for their sin of disobeying his law last time. He's brought them back to the land as a small remnant. And now what are Israel doing? They're disobeying God's law all over again. In direct contradiction to God's law, they are marrying non-Jews. Verse 10. But now, O oh our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. 
By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. God has been merciful. He could have just wiped Israel out, but he hasn't. He's brought them back to the land in this time of Ezra. He's spared them. And now here they are, throwing it back in his face. There's no excuse. And so Ezra says to God, we, we stand guilty before you. If, you. if you totally destroy us this time, it's only what we deserve. Verse 13. What has happened to us, that is in the exile, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet our God, you've punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this, brought us back. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Oh, Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, that because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. As Ezra prays, the people around him start to realise how serious the situation is. When Israel disobeyed God last time, God destroyed them, sent them into exile. Now they have done it again. This could be the end for Israel. So chapter 10 and verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. And then a bloke called Shechaniah speaks up. He says, it's not too late. Let's, let's get rid of the foreign women and their children. Let, let's, let's get them out. And so Ezra puts them under oath to do it. Verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. In accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God, let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you. So take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. I don't know how you feel about it. Here they are, they are going to send their non-Jewish wives and their little children away. Pretty serious, don't you think? And you see it in the context here, and you start to see the danger that Israel were in. 
God nearly destroyed them last time for failing to obey his law. Now he's given them another chance. They've come back from exile. They're back in the land. They've got God's law. And now they're disobeying him all over again. It's, it's It's like they're hanging onto the land by a thread. If they're not careful, they could all end up destroyed. And so they take this drastic action. All the foreign wives, all the children, they have to go. The leaders of Israel, they call a national meeting. Word goes out. And even though it's the middle of winter, even though it's pouring with rain and freezing cold, everyone comes. And there they sit, shivering. Shivering because of the weather. Shivering because of what God could do to them. Verse 7. Proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the twentieth day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed, that's literally shivering, because of the occasion and because of the rain. Ezra stands up. He says, here's the problem. You've disobeyed God's law by marrying non-Jews. The solution is simple. They have to go. Verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now, Make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. And the people agree. Verse 12. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. But it's pouring rain. It's freezing cold. And these things need to be properly investigated. There are thousands of people standing here in the rain. You can't sort out this kind of a matter like that on the spot. And so rather than dealing with it there and then, they appoint some judges. They get them to carefully investigate all the cases of intermarriage and to take the necessary action. And over the next couple of months, the judges sort it all out. Verse 13. But there are many people here and it's the rainy season. So we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we've sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel and Josiah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases, and by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. So there is their appointed, and they carefully investigate over a period of months. I guess the reason why it takes months is this. It's not just a case of working out if if someone's wife is a foreigner. It's a case of the foreign spouse not consenting to be Jewish. See, there's, there's no problem with a foreign woman becoming a Jew and then marrying a Jewish a man. I mean, you can take Ruth as a case in point on that. The problem is Jews bearing, being married to, to people who won't live as Jews. 
who keep on worshipping their idols, who, who won't live by God's law. Maybe the, the families were all given a chance to become Jewish. Doesn't doesn't say there. But what it does say in the rest of chapter 10 is this. There were more than a hundred cases where men divorced their pagan wives and sent their children away. Verses 18 to 19, we see that some of the priests do it. And can you see there they offer sacrifices for their guilt? Then there's a list of Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and then ordinary Israelites, all of them in the same boat. They have to send their pagan wives away. Pretty severe. Pretty severe, isn't it? But the fact is, here are Israel making tough choices to follow God's law. Here they are taking God's word seriously. Here they are taking God seriously. They're taking the danger of disobedience to God seriously. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Suddenly these guys have wised up a bit. It actually is looking pretty good. That is, until you jump a few years forward. Because as we're going to see later, once you get to chapter 13 of the book of Nehemiah, it happens all over again. Israel's repentance doesn't last more than a few years. Within a few years, we're going to see in a few weeks that Nehemiah has to deal with this exact problem of intermarriage all over again. And that's really what these books of Ezra and Nehemiah are on about. Israel has God's law, that they know how God wants them to live in the promised land, but Israel doesn't obey God's law. That they can't obey God's law. Because, because like you and me, Israel have got hearts turned away from God. Israel is sinful. And remember, remember where you find Ezra and Nehemiah in biblical history. This is the very end, the, the, right at the very end of Old Testament history. You come here in Ezra and Nehemiah to the very end of Old Testament history and you see that there is a serious problem with God's law. God's law cannot keep his people in a right relationship with him, not because the law is bad, but because sinful people are unable to obey God's law. By the end of the Old Testament, it's clear. All God's law can do is show us how sinful we are, how much we turn away from God. All God's law can do is show us that we need to be rescued. We need to have our sin forgiven. We need to be rescued from God's anger and judgment. And we need new hearts, hearts that are changed, hearts that want to live God's way. Of course, that's why the Old Testament needs a New Testament. And that's what the good news of Jesus is, is, all, is all on about, isn't it? Jesus has come and fulfilled God's law for us. He's perfectly obeyed God's law in our place. And then, and then he died on the cross to, to bear the judgment that we deserve for failing to keep God's law. And now Jesus has risen again and poured out the Holy Spirit so, so we can have new hearts. So we can start to live God's way now and so we can look to a future where we are changed, where our sin is taken away and where we serve God with pleasure forever. I don't know if anybody saw the Billy Connolly interview the other night with uh, Andrew Denton. He was talking about how incredibly dull he thought heaven would be. 
because that's what he wasn't factoring into into the equation is the fact that we will have new hearts it won't be dull for us to serve God anymore we will want to serve God we will love God as we should Well, back here in Ezra and Nehemiah, God's law could never be the final solution. But now Jesus has come. He's done for us what the law could not do. And in doing so, Jesus has brought us under a new covenant. We're not under God's law anymore. God's law in its direct application is finished for us. And so, this law about intermarriage is finished for us. doesn't matter now if a Jew marries a non-Jew. I'm very pleased about that being the offspring of a Jew and a non-Jew. It doesn't matter now. For Christians, you can marry someone who is not of your own nation, who is not of your own race. And if, as a Christian, you are married to a non-Christian, the Bible is clear. You must not do what Israel did in Ezra's time. You need to stay married. And you need to commend the gospel to your spouse by your godly Christian life. On your outline there, I have put 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Pretty clear, isn't it? We are not under this Old Testament law about intermarriage anymore. We must not follow the example of Israel here directly anymore. But. But. That is not to say that this stuff about intermarriage is irrelevant to us as Christians. In fact, it is extremely relevant. Now, the the issue itself of single Christians choosing a marriage partner is not directly addressed in the New Testament. And there's a very simple reason why it's not not directly addressed in the New Testament. You didn't have a choice who you married as a single person in biblical cultures. Marriages were arranged by your family. You had no choice. There was only one kind of person who could choose who they married in biblical culture, and that was widows. And have a look with me at the instruction to widows there in, in, uh, the, on, on your outline, the next passage. It says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but look at this bit, but he must belong to the Lord. The only people who have a choice have to make that choice. If you're a Christian, you are different. Like with Israel, you are God's person. And like with Israel, God calls us to take him seriously. He calls us to make tough choices to have Jesus as our Lord. He calls us to live our whole lives for him. Romans chapter 12, God says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds through Jesus. And that includes our family lives. That's not just talking about an hour on Sunday. Husbands and wives, we are called to help each other as Christians. We're called to bring our children up to love and serve the Lord Jesus. And the simple fact is, it's going to be extremely 
difficult if you are married to a non-Christian. I mean, really. How can you be wanting to be a serious, all-of-life Christian and then choose to marry a non-Christian? You're not going to be able to talk deeply about Jesus at home. You're not going to be able to pray with your spouse. You're not going to have the example and encouragement of your spouse as you struggle to live a Christian life. There's not going to be anybody there to drag you out of bed when you don't feel like going to church in the morning, to to drag you out, out from in front of the TV when you don't feel like going to Bible study at night. You're not going to have anybody who's going to sincerely help you raise the children as Christians to, to love and serve Christ. But above all, I think the problem is this. If you're a Christian... Christianity should be the most important thing in your life. And if you're a Christian, your marriage should be the most important human relationship in your life. And so if you choose to marry a non-Christian, you are stuck in this bind. You cannot share the most important thing in your life within the context of the most important relationship in your life. It's a terrible bind. And then think even more than that. You live with the grief that the most important person in your life here on earth is not going to be with you in eternal life. It is vital that Christians marry Christians. It is one of the most important choices a Christian can make. Now, some people might say this is narrow-minded or unloving. They might say, you're missing out on evangelistic opportunities by only marrying Christians. You are alienating people from Christianity by your narrow-mindedness. But I don't think the argument holds water. Let's think about it together for a second. What is the message that you are giving to a non-Christian by going out with them or marrying them. Here's what you're saying. You're saying, obedience to Jesus does not matter that much to me. It's all right for me to have as my primary human relationship a person who is separate from my obedience to Jesus. You're saying, ultimately, my relationship with you is more important than my relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is, Jesus is Lord of everything. The message that you are giving is, Jesus is not Lord of a very central thing in my life. And if you seriously love someone, then surely as a Christian, the thing you want most for them is to hear the true message about Jesus and be saved. Here's a much better message to give to a non-Christian. Jesus is the most important element in my life, more important than my relationship with you. And so I cannot and I will not pursue a relationship with you. Now there's a powerful gospel message. As this person sees the reality of the lordship of Jesus lived out in your life. Now I realise that that can be a really tough decision. It could mean you end up unmarried. It could mean you end up without children of your own. 
It's a radical decision and I think as a church we need to grieve for particularly those women in their 30s and 40s who are not married. I think we want to give them every encouragement and support and include them in our families and with our children. This is a radical decision for a person to make. But that's what it means to take the Lordship of Jesus seriously. It means like Israel, making tough choices. Okay, let's finish. Ezra brought the law to Israel. And in obedience to God's law, they stopped intermarriage. They made that tough choice. It was good for a while, but it didn't last. It didn't last because, because God's law can't save anyone. Only Jesus can save us. And so Jesus has brought us out from God's law and into a new relationship with God. But the danger of intermarriage in a new sense, it, it still remains. The minister at my wedding was right. The greatest single influence in your life will be your husband or wife. And so, Christians should marry Christians. And then, in our marriages, we need to use our influence. We need to trust Jesus together. We need to read the Bible together. We need to pray together. We need to serve together. We do need to drag each other out of bed on those mornings when we don't want to get up. We do need to drag each other out from in front of the TV on those evenings when we don't want to go to Bible study. We need to work together in our marriages to grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our loving Heavenly Father and you do want what is best for us. Thank you that what is best for us is to live our lives completely for you. Thank you that Jesus has lived and died and risen again in our place so we can be your people and be forgiven and be with you forever. Please work in us by your Holy Spirit so that we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord of all our lives. Help us in our marriages to push and spur each other on to love and good deeds and to grow in Christ. We pray for those who are unmarried in our congregation and whom we know. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you help them to be content in singleness, brave in their decision to live for the Lord Jesus and to pursue only those relationships that will encourage them in Christ. Help us as a congregation to love and to serve and to look after those who are single, particularly those who are grieving their singleness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.